Welcome to the OT lifestyle movement. This is for the occupational therapy visionaries and the ones who see things differently. We're moving our profession forward through living and leading a truly holistic lifestyle. Hey, hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the OT lifestyle movement podcast. I'm Rhiannon Crisp, occupational therapist, personal trainer, and founder of otlifestylemovement.com. Today, we are talking all about farm-based practice and equine-assisted occupational therapy with the director of Barefoot Therapies based in Victoria, Australia, Sarah Munn. Sarah is an OT manager, or she was an OT manager and a pediatric OT when her first child was born with Down syndrome. Her second child was born a year later and was diagnosed with anxiety, autism spectrum disorder, oppositional defiance disorder, and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to hearing Sarah's story and all the amazing work that she's doing today because it's absolutely incredible. And I know there are so many OTs who also want to find out um, different ways of bringing OT into nature and into the outdoors. So welcome, Sarah. Thank you. Hi, Rhiannon. How are you? Good, very good. It's a bit cold down here today in Victoria. <laughs> oh, I know, we're heading into the cooler months. Yeah. Um, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show today. And we always hit the rewind button to find out about your journey and your story and how you came to do the work that you're doing today. And sometimes this is influenced by a personal journey and I'd love to hear your story. Like, how, how did you come to do the work that you're doing today? Oh, Rhiannon, how long have you got? <laughs> it's actually quite a long story. Even how I got into OT was because I got kicked out of university doing something else. <laughs> so um, that kind of put me, and, and, you know, and actually joking aside, I wasn't very academic. Um, although now, um, at 52, I've decided it's not because I'm stupid. I'm actually fairly bright. But the academic system didn't suit me very well, which is, you know, I say joking aside because I see a lot of children like that, you know, coming through our service. And so, you know, I do actually reflect on that I wasn't very good at school and I did get kicked out of university for failing exams, which was hugely life changing. Um, and, you know, so at that point, at, you know, the ripe old age of 19, I ended up getting my first job. In, in healthcare, working with adults and children with, um, well, I mean, learning disabilities, intellectual disabilities, but they also all had some kind of psychiatric or behavioural challenge as well. Um, and I did that for three years, then went off to do OT. And then ever since I qualified as an OT, I've worked in paediatrics. And obviously, you know, as you get you know, more advanced in your career, you tend to move up through management. So I did end up managing, you know, quite a big team. Um, and then, as you've said, I ended up having two children, um, both with autism, ADHD, all of the, <laughs> all of these letters after their name, one also having Down syndrome. So very different children, you know, and there's me on maternity leave traipsing these two little ones around therapy services and there wasn't much available there wasn't an awful lot of choice there was no ndis funding um they're they're 11 and 12 now but um you know and there was me on the other side of 
of the service, kind of, you know, uh, I was 40 and 41 when I had my boys, so I was an experienced human being. And, you know, I might be kind of there with a new grad therapist trying to be patient and kind, but kind of going, come on. <laughs> so what are we doing? So what are the goals? And it was like, I was finding it so hard to be just a mom. <laughs> so all of that, you know, and it all seems a long time ago now. But basically, you know, my, my, my job, my local job for the health service didn't really support me to stay and go back part time or anything like that. So I ended up having to having to leave to care for my kids didn't help that my husband had also had a motorbike accident and so he was in a wheelchair and couldn't get to the bathroom on his own <laughs> I had a one and two year old and work said well we're not supporting more leave so I was like so I resign so I resigned <laughs> um best thing ever and then I'm English and I, I trained with a good friend of mine and lived with her in London before we both ended up in Australia. And she called me from Sydney and she said, Sarah, they're bringing in this national registration thing. I feel like you don't want to have a long break. If you have a long break, you'll have so many hoops to jump through to actually get registered. She said, you'll have to do something. So I thought, OK. I need to see my neighbours. There's kids out there with, you know, challenges, disabilities, whatever you want to call it, and the parents don't know what to do. And I've got all this skill set, really, and I've got my own children, and and I'm not that keen on what we're being offered, you know. And so it really started with one client, and um, the phone didn't stop ringing. And that would be, when was that? 2012, around there, I started. So yeah and as the phone rang I kept saying yes I kept saying yes I kept putting people on and now we've got 15 therapists now wow so yeah. did you take me back in time did you always have this idea of barefoot therapies so outside nature-based farm-based therapy or did this evolve over time both I never planned to do it but I say that, I say I never planned, the universe planned to do it, I think, uh, which sounds very out there. But when I actually ended up with um, our little five acre hobby farm and horses, and then I wanted to say to my clients, um, and I had another OT working part time as well, so just the two of us doing part time work. Um, and I was like, how do we get insured to be able to bring some of our clients to pack the ponies? You know, that was really all it was. Um, and, and that's where the whole farm thing started. And uh, and Tanya's still with me, you know, all these years on, she still works with me. And she now is the um, lead therapist at our outdoor programs. Um, and she runs all sorts of amazing things. But, but anyway, um, there was a point at which I kind of thought, okay, this is now evolved into this kind of outdoor farm based you know, therapy program. And one day I just had this really vivid memory of, it was just after I'd been kicked out of uni when I was 19, walking down a country lane with a good friend of mine in Devon and saying to him, I've just got this job working with these people who didn't have the right services for them um, and they were in and out of institutions and stuff. And I said to him, wouldn't it be amazing, right, if you had this like farm and there were therapists there and kind of the people ran the farm, you know, the clients kind of had ownership on running things. And, so, and this, this 
conversation just dropped into me like this memory and I'd completely forgotten about it. Um, and I was like, oh my God, I put that out there, you know, when I was 19 years old, 20 years old, and it's kind of come back for me and been delivered to me to, okay, right, you know, off you go then. <laughs> and that's kind of, so that's the answer. I kind of, yes, long, long time ago, it was spoken out by me, put out there to the universe, if you like. Um, and then slowly, 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 it crept up on me. I never, ever sat there and thought, I want a big practice. I never sat there and thought I want a clinic. I never sat there and thought I want to run a therapy farm. I never thought any of that. I just thought the phone's ringing. These children need some help. I need another therapist to help me. I need another therapist to help me. These kids need to be outside. These kids need to be running around my farm. <laughs> and it just, so it, you know, it just happened. Yeah, fabulous. I think that's fabulous. It's really organic, really organically. Did... You were a pediatric OT prior to having your children. Once you had your kids and then you found out that they had certain needs, did that influence your OT journey at all? And if so, how? I'm sure it did. I'm, I'm, mm. I'm sure it did. And I don't know how calculated that. Well, I'm a very intuitive person. I kind of, you know, I kind of roll with it and flow with it a bit. Um, so I don't think I sat there and thought, okay, you know, what do my sons need? What do I need as a mother? Uh, not in the early days. I didn't. Now I do. Um, and I think I did, you know, I worked in all sorts of different settings in, in, in London. Um, you know, I worked in community, worked in schools, in mainstream, in special schools. Um, and then I worked in, I was the senior therapist in neurosurgery um and neurology at great ormond street hospital for children so i saw all sorts of kids from around the world they would go to there for neurosurgery or whatever um so i kind of had a lot of experience of different parents and different children to draw on and, and quite a clinical background as well as you know the kind of community doing the home visits and stuff so i had quite a lot to draw on and none of it really was what I wanted for my family or myself, you know, and I think that did make a difference was, and this is pre NDIS. I was like, I've got a son with Down syndrome. He's going to need some kind of support for the rest of his life. What do I want it to look like? And I remember going to a psychology appointment and it was in, you know, they do it a lot in Australia. They have, you know, the, the sort of converted house, you know, um, and I went in and it was really grubby and there was like dirty neck curtains and, you know, a stain on the carpet and an old couch that you'd get, you know, free on Gumtree. And I was just like looking at the price we were paying privately at that point to try and get an assessment to get him to, uh, you know, for school. And, um, and I just remember thinking, how unvalued do I feel here? Um, and I actually remember feeling quite upset. Thinking, you can't charge all these people. We know you're full. We know you've got a few different psychologists working here. And it's actually quite grubby and not really offering value. So when I ended up with a few of my own, you know, we ended up with um, myself and, and my part-time OT tenure. And then we got another one full-time, Kristen. Shout-outs to all these wonderful people that have helped me um, over the years. And... And we set a little clinic up uh, down in town in Rosebud and 
we wanted it to be a little bit brighter and a little bit nicer and and it was a tiny little space and we couldn't do much with it but we tried you know we tried to make it a bit more funky and a bit more um that people would feel valued if they walked in there um and now we've got amazing premises now where the clinic is you know it's really beautiful it's it's in a really rural setting it's got you know big cathedral ceiling and you know it's really beautiful and you look out the windows and you can see paddocks and horses and all sorts of stuff um, and then the other venue we have is is actually at my home you know where we've got another little you know set of stables and things and so i think it, that i remember being pivotal don't undervalue people that are doing it tough already lick a paint new curtains not hard and and so I, I think that was a kind of a metaphor for very deeply wanting to value that you know if you've got a child with something like down syndrome or cerebral palsy this isn't a quick bit of intervention where you're going to sit in the waiting room for you know six or seven sessions it's a lifetime so yeah, that definitely um, made a difference. And, and I often will try and bring this into supervision. And you know, we you know we obviously have uh, you know younger therapists that are coming up in their career, and and always just bringing it back to you know no that 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 family's not being difficult. That family is struggling, and that's part of our job is to be you know be there for that and provide for that. Mm. Uh, so yeah anyway that's mm. a long answer <laughs> mm. no no it's really good and I'm really interested what your quote-unquote clinic looks like because it sounds very non-traditional it sounds very non-clinical what yeah. does it what does it look like can you give us a bit of a visual and who are the clients that you're seeing do you see adults or it sounds like predominantly children children so we call it a child and family center um, so we do see we see children and we will see parents so we will support parents um, we have some mental health OTs that have also got a strong background in adults as well as you know obviously now working with children so uh, we have a strong belief that with certain families you can't really work with the child and make change unless you really can support the parents so we have built that into our skill set because it makes the intervention more effective so um so you know we are dirt road to the clinic um you know you got some wooden steps and it's basically you know a very big um you know two-story environment you go into a nice big waiting area that's got a big hunk of wood as your reception area you know wooden rafters um but then you go through to real modern you know we've got we've got all the facilities that we need we've got three kitchens there um so we've got a kitchen that parents can use if they need to we've got one we use for our eating clinic so we we do clinical things there like for example we have an eating clinic um, and, a, and a, a food exploration kind of program which is run by a dietitian, an OT and a speech pathologist. Um, and then we have an assistant that also does some kind of food play stuff as well. So they have a, a big room, which also has a kitchen attached to it. Um, so they can also do, you know, uh, food prep and that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, it's a clinical kind of thing, but it doesn't need to be in an awful environment. That's our belief. Um, and for some of what we provide, you know, we do need to be inside. Um, you know standardized assessments things like that but we have a garden outside um, which is very natural and the kids move 
you know, twigs around, they make things like birdhouses to put out, we've got, they're making um, big planter boxes to start, we're going to start a horticulture program at the clinic as well as what we run at the farm. Um, so yeah, and then the hobby farm is only 10 minutes down the road. So, you know, we've, we've got both environments. And one of the things that we, we want to do is have the process very professional. So it's, I think with things like equine assisted therapy, it's very easy for people to say they provide that. They don't actually have to be qualified therapists or registered with anybody. It's an unregulated profession if you want to call it a profession or an, uh, an unregistered um, un, unregulated um, sector so we really didn't want to just have parents ringing up saying we want equine assisted therapy or we want horse therapy or we want this and do you do riding and all of that it was like no we do therapy assessment and intervention or you know or practice that's what we do um, all children or families will come for an assessment so you can't just ring up and come and hang out with the horses because there's a lot of places with unqualified people doing that and that's great and they offer something that's good for well-being um, and I, nothing against any of that as long as it's properly set up but for us we were we were a bit like we don't even know that that's actually going to be the most effective approach and we have a whole host of different evidence-based approaches we can draw from so the fact that they like animals may be a good enough reason to have them, you know, come to the farm, but it actually may not be because if their main problem is, you know, um, handwriting at school that's causing the anxiety, that's causing the this and the that and the other, um, it may be that we need to do some handwriting practice and use a co-op approach, you know? So we, we kind of try and do a proper assessment and then work with the family on what's gonna be motivating, what do they need to do? What do they need to do first this term? Is it, is it equine assisted therapy or animal assisted therapy or a farm-based program or is it not actually? Is it actually something different? So we, we, we want parents to have choice, but we also recognize that with 15 therapists, we've got a lot of expertise there to help them choose the right thing rather than just, you know, oh, we saw something on 60 Minutes with kids with autism and horses and it's amazing. And it's like, yes, it may be, but let's actually start, we're, we're therapists, we start with an assessment, right? not a service you know not well we will only do this so that's like i was kind of you know trying to express to you before that it's not just well we do equine assisted therapy for anyone that rings up um we don't do riding we don't do mounted we don't feel that we need to do that to reach the goals that we're going for so yeah so yeah know. let's dive in. yeah if we can dive into those two different things so there's the farm-based practices that you talk about and then there's also the equine and animal assisted occupational therapy yeah let's seeing as we're on sort of the equine therapy let's continue to dive into that a little bit deeper yeah. so can you just talk to us about what is equine is it equine assisted occupational therapy because i know there are different names around this as well <laughs> <laughs> yeah um that's probably a whole nother interview <laughs> look it's really complicated um there's equine assisted therapy equine facilitated therapy equine assisted learning equine facilitated learning equine assisted psychotherapy there's so many so many same things we call ours equine assisted therapy because i've been 
I've got mentors in the States and people I've been working with and having court, doing courses with and on committees with. And we believe that we need to have a term that most people adopt, which is an umbrella term for including horses in a therapeutic process. Because where we fall down in saying that this is evidence-based is there's so many silly little pockets of research that have gone on and they've all got slightly different names and no one actually talks about what it actually is. It's the common, you know, um, bit of gold in there that we're actually trying to, to, to look at whether it's effective or not. So that makes it really, really difficult. And um, we did some work with OT Australia a, a while back um, just trying to look at doing a decent literature search and what's out there and the evidence just isn't robust enough um and, and part of the reason for that is all these random terms for things that don't even know why they're slightly different um and then there's some courses you can go on you know there's there's a lot of stuff in uh, equine assisted psychotherapy but then not all of us want to do psychotherapy. You know, we see young children that might have an intellectual disability. Psychotherapy is not an approach that I want to use. So we have other approaches we can also, you know, adapt to include horses too. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's really difficult to give an answer to what is this because yeah. everyone does it differently as well. Some people will have a therapist and a handler for the horse. Some people will have a horse experience, you know, um, a, a therapist also experienced with horses working kind of on their own in both those you know well maybe uh, if we talk about what you do and also you mentioned about the evidence saying that there's not a lot of evidence around equine assisted occupational therapy how do you go about then um almost justifying the work that you do in this area because there will be other ot's who will be listening into this saying you know, this is why I'm tuning in because there's, I've got it in my heart, you know, this passion that I want to work outside. I want to work with animals. Um, but I just can't find the literature to support this. How do you, how do you go about this? What are your thoughts so on this? This is where I, this is where I, I, I feel like I talk differently from anyone else. I hear talk. Everyone else is trying to justify this horse connection. I'm not, I'm an OT. It's an activity. I agree. It's an activity. Mm -hmm. Like I love horses, and and the, some of the work you can do with the horses' emotion and personality and behaviour, and the child's as well, or the parents as well, and assertiveness. And there's so many beautiful things you can do that you you couldn't do with even a smaller animal, because of the power of stopping a big animal. You know, we do a thing where we'll do lunging or circling, and we'll get the horse going around you, and because of horse behavior, if you change your body language and you breathe out, that horse will stop and face you and walk in to greet you. Now that's pretty powerful. If you've got a horse trotting around you that you can literally blow out and it will stop and come in for a cuddle with you. And from that, you can build things like, you know, breath control. We see kids with ADHD, they don't want to do mindfulness. They don't want to do it. They don't, they can't be still. They, they've been told how many times, just take a breath, take a few breaths, you know, they, they can't. But as soon as they've done that activity, you can say, you know what, you might be in the playground, the kids might be difficult for you and it might all just feel blah, blah, overwhelming. If you can stop a running horse with your breath, 
what else might you be able to do? What a great start to managing breath control. So, you know, we might do something like that. Um, and so is everyone else doing their kind assisted therapy. But for me, that is a tiny bit of a session. It's a bit like adding in a little bit of yoga or a little bit of mindfulness that we might all do within our session. Doesn't mean we're yoga therapists, doesn't mean we're, you know. So the people that do work with the horses, I have to say, are very experienced horse people. And, you know, and we do our own internal training and we train elsewhere as well. Um, but it's only part of it. So it's an activity like crossing the road, riding a bike, learning to cook, mm -hmm. you know. Some children, and it might be hobby, it might be it might be some vocational work, um, but learning to go into a paddock, greet a horse appropriately, have that horse want to be with you, put a halter on. We do a rope halter with a knot, or if they're working on belts, then we might have a buckle. We have different kinds of things we can use, um, and then you know being able to manage the gate, to open the gate, to have the horse go through without pushing you over or running to the grass. They can see it over there. And then getting that horse into the stall and tying it up, selecting your brushes, might be very sensory on your hands. So what we're doing all the time is using evidence-based practice that we know. So you go into, you, you might be doing some sensory motor, some, you know, you might say, well, I want them to walk the horse over the poles on the way so that they are doing some work on their balance. Now, nobody says, is it the right thing to do to have a child walk along a balance beam? Of course it makes sense. It's a childhood activity. You think it's going to improve their balance. You do that leading the horse. So it's just the same kinds of things. They can go in and out things, spatial awareness. They can set out an obstacle course, just like you do in a clinic with a child with, you know, DCD or something. And then you've got your horse and it's like, okay, well, I can see you can fit through that gap. Can you and your horse? You've got to make it very different. And then, you know, you get into the sensory stuff. So if you've got a child, for example, that has really disordered pain pathways, maybe because they were born very premature, maybe they had lots of pinpricks and lots of tubes and all of that kind of stuff. So they might have turned into quite a hypersensitive, you know, with all these fear responses to things like prickly hay. And then you can bring in a bit of your cognitive behavioural around, you know, I know this feels really, really awful for you, but, you, but you know, know that the hay can't hurt you, you know, and what do we do with that feeling and where do you feel that feeling and what colour is that feeling? You've got a few sessions right there in can we fill the hay net because the horse is hungry. <laughs> yeah, and I love this perspective that you're coming from, Sarah. It sounds like the horses, you know, are really used as a tool to help the child or the person get to their meaningful goal hmm. yeah. yeah and, and we, have different, we have slightly different programs too so you know if for example we've got someone who maybe with an intellectual disability goes to special school somebody like that for example they may not need to have so we have ot and psychology uh, we have a provisional psychologist as well here doing the horse stuff they may not need that level of expertise for two years right now and i think with the NDIS funding, lots of people are keep going to the same appointments forever and ever and a day. Um, we don't really want that here. We want to be able to say, okay, we've got you to a point, you've been more independent, now you can go to the like, riding school or something. 
but with people like that that may need to practice 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 we have equine um, assisted therapy assistants so they're very horse focused people who also have some experience in disability um, and so they may spend quite a lot you know a lot of sessions saying actually this person wants to be able to do this as a hobby or as you know voluntary work you know it might be a teenager and so we might have a program where they can come and hang out with the assistants and do some work like that so we're not blocking all of the therapy time but equally we're not saying there's no more we can do for you so we do things like that as well to try and service our community as best we can um yeah i can't do you work with any other animals do you have yeah so yeah we've got yeah so we're getting more into the animal assist. So I used to think of it as an equine assisted therapy program. Um, but now, so I've run the special interest group with Claire, who she was setting that up from a, a you know, a, a canine perspective as, as, you know, assistance dogs Australia. Um, and we do it together. And so I was also working with people on what were the competencies, you know, in Australia around this and nationally and internationally as well. What were the competencies? How are their standards? How can we use other people's standards into our practice? And that always all ended up being under the banner of Animal Therapies Limited, which is a charity um, that has attempted to and is actually being really successful um, in trying to say, what is everybody doing? We want to actually connect service users with service providers, but we want those service providers to have a certain standard. Um, whether, so an, horses have gone under animals just the same as, you know, the chickens and the dogs. There's obviously a massive dog component in there with assistance dogs, therapy dogs, companion dogs. I'm learning all about that now. And so um, that has assisted us in making our animal assisted element so we do have chickens and goats which you kind of think oh you know what's the harm you tie up the goat you give it a brush you, you do its feed you take it in you know you feed the chickens you get the eggs but actually there's a lot more to it than that for the animals and so you know now we're learning more we're able to engage those animals a bit more um and you know just little things like terminology you said oh you use the horses we would never say we use animals so we would include the animals, um, but we wouldn't use them. They're not just here for our benefit of, you know, doing what we want to do. I'm in private practice making money as well. You know, it's uh, we don't use them for that. So there's a whole lot of terminology in there that people have to get their heads around if they want to be taken seriously in the industry. Um, and a whole load of standards around, you know, positive training and stuff. Um, but we have three dogs here and I'm, and I'm I'm about to go through a process with them of making sure they are properly assessed because they spend a lot of the time behind the garden gate because you can't have dogs running around when people are working with horses and the dogs haven't been properly assessed. So, you know, from your insurance point of view, you make sure you dot your I's and cross your T's. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's so interesting because I personally don't know a lot about it. Um, so I'm learning a lot from you. So thank you so much. What about the OTs who, you know, this is something that they want to get into, but they just don't have the confidence. What, what would you suggest for them to build their confidence in working in this area or opening up their own private practice in this area? What would you suggest? 
Look, I think going along to things like the special interest group is helpful. There's just been, they've just missed it actually for this year. They've, we've just had a, um, a month long conference, um, animal assisted um, therapy conference, which had speakers from all around the world because it was, we did it um, uh, online this year. So last year it was in Adelaide, this year it's, uh, they've organised it all online. That's the animal therapies group have done that. Um, and that's been amazing. So that will happen, you know, again in the future. So linking into some of those things. And I mean, if anyone wants to contact me, more than happy to let them know, you know, there's all sorts of closed Facebook groups and things like that. Um, and I can do coaching as well. I do have some OTs that I've done coaching with who've either got a horse or want to get a horse or want to use, you know, sort of the local riding school, for example, as a venue to take clients. Um, so people that are, are, are properly experienced in um, horsemanship and ground skills, um, you know, I'm more than happy to help them. Um, and then the You whole... might be careful what you wish for. You might get an <laughs> influx of emails. <laughs> I know. Um, and, and then there's, a, you know, the, the whole sort of smaller animals, which I think people can more easily include in their practice. But still, they do need to make sure that those animals are correctly treated, given breaks. And you need to read the signs of your horse's stress and anxiety. And you have to manage that, you know. Our horses, we are very specific if they have, you know, um, we don't work them hard. None of them do back-to-back -back sessions. We only run it. How many horses days. do you have, Sarah? I've got seven. Wow. Seven horses from miniature horses right up to big, you know, big spotty Appaloosa horses. Um, so, and, and they've all got, you know, interesting personalities. They're not all that easy. I think, you know, people think you need to have a riding school dull horse that's going to stand there and never put a foot wrong. Um, and they are very safe for this kind of work. But, you know, we've got some pretty sassy horses here who, as long as you know what you're doing, can be perfectly safe. But you do need to know what you're doing and you do need to know how to prepare the horse and manage the horse's mood and emotions and hormones. Mares are terribly hormonal. So there are certain times when one of our mares just really wouldn't be working with us. It wouldn't be appropriate. Um, so you need, to, you need to know your stuff. Um, but with smaller animals, you know, you still need to be able to spend time with them on relaxation. And, you know, as human therapists, we can take on, we, we're getting to know more and more, aren't we, about people's energy and that, you know, they may have an energy field around them. It's not just all in this body. And we can read it. We know animals can read it. Um, I can see it with the, with the horses. We occasionally let our Kelpie out to help if we've got a child that is really, really, really struggling. And we do have some pretty challenging kids coming uh, who really won't go to the clinics, won't go to the GP anymore, won't go to the cycle, won't go at school, won't go anywhere. And we start some of our sessions by going to their bedroom and helping them get out from under the doona in life generally and we're, we're, if that's where we need to start that's where we start and we end up with them at the farm and then we're talking about getting back to school and you know that's a long term can take a couple of years for some of the children um but you know our kelpie can pretty much spot the kid that needs the help and she'll just go and sit next to them and wait for them to give her a pat 
Um, and then, you know, we've got somewhere to go there with, you know, should we, should we get her something to eat? Would you like, you know, throw the ball and do different things? So we know the horses can read and the animals can read the people. But what people need to remember if they want to do this work is as human therapists, we get supervision, we get time to debrief. If we get a lot of someone's baggage on us and we feel that, we know we need to go home, have a shower, you know, go for a run or a walk or have a glass of wine, whatever it is we do, we know how to manage that. With our animals that we're just going to put back in the paddock or back in a cage or back in wherever they live, we actually can't ignore that. So you can't just back to back, you can't, your, your, you know, your sessions and then go home. Mm. So, you know, there's all sorts that needs to be considered to do it, to do it well. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Interesting. So interesting. What about if we have a look at the farm-based practice now, like animals aside, what do we do? What's farm-based occupational therapy? What would this look like? What does it include? Um, how are you working in this environment? So we've got a range of programs that we run. We do bike riding. Um, so we get kids that can't ride bikes and we get them riding bikes. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, that's, we've got a whole, we've got the signs and, you know, sort of bollards and all sorts of things that we put out for them. And then that can go then to a community-based outdoor program. So it might be the therapist goes riding on, you know, the bike path with the child and a parent. Um, so we try not to start and end it at the farm. We try to take it to the community if we can. Um, but yeah, bike riding has been a favourite one. That's that's always got people waiting to get into that program. We do a preschool group, which is lots of hide and seek around the trees and playing in a we've got a pile of sand and a pile of dirt and um, somewhere that we can you know make cubbies out of sticks and that kind of thing. So it's almost like an outdoor kinder program that one, and that's run by an OT and a speech pathologist. Um, we have a nature program. Um, so, you know, that's not really including animals. In fact, the therapist that runs that's allergic to animals. So. <laughs> she, uh, she likes the outdoor programs. So, yeah, so that's, um, we follow some of what Brom and Painter does um, around, we've, we've done some work with her just around what the evidence is for that. So that is an evidence-based um, nature program because we build it on the evidence that she knows about because that's her area um, so yeah that and and that includes lots of time outside and for some children it might in involve some research it might involve some sticking it might involve you know putting things in a book or if you've got to do handwriting practice writing about your leaves or it might include some art but very much nature based program um, and then, yeah, we have the psychology sessions, the OT sessions. And then it's also available, you know, this week, one of our, our senior speechy, um, she's got a child that's really not engaging in anything in the clinic. And so she just said, can I, can I just bring him to the farm when it's quiet? So she's coming. Um, when it's quiet, when there's not much going on, and just to try a different environment and see if that helps to motivate him. Um, and, you know, it may be that that's an ongoing thing. It may just be a, a way they can improve their rapport so she can go back to the clinic or it may be that she refers him into an outdoor, an outdoor program. We do kids shed. So we've got a big shed. We've got a builder that works with us who, um, so he gets all the power tools out. So at the moment they're building a new shelter for the goats. So they, they've dug the posts in, 
and they put the roof on, it's got a slab laid, concrete slab, it's going to have a veranda, the goats are getting bunks inside. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be... Hey, is, this a program? is this part of a program or is this yeah. something? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, so, so uh, that's called Building Friendships. That's a, a group for older boys to use construction, um, to, to learn some construction. So that's run with a, a, a therapy assistant who's a builder and um, one of the OTs runs that group. And then we have similar groups for younger children where they might be doing farm activities or, you know, building things. We had to paint some of our fences, so they, they got involved in doing, you know, that. So that they might do, they might do those kind of things. Um, we try to include farm jobs the kids can't do all of it and, and and that's not the point the point isn't that they you know have to come do jobs you know because we really want them to be able to lead where they want to go with things and and you know look some of them may have quite a quite a good structure particularly for the kids with ASD you might want a good structure or if you're trying to manage some a few kids with you know um, quite flighty behavior together you might want to have good structure then again you also want to teach that flexibility so you might want to mess with that structure a bit or you might want to have no structure and see what they can come up with together you might be working on leadership skills so you might say okay we've got a loose idea you know you're the leader this week you know so there's a whole range of different approaches that we would use in those um sessions and in groups as well we look a lot at dynamics um so you know more and more we're starting to realize that the dynamics in friendships is you know people say social skills um and there's a whole lot of kind of laminated book kind of activities you can do around that which is great um but when you're out here using you know power tools and shovels and things that can hurt people you, you really have to look at those dynamics of you know how are you working together and are you annoying each other and how do you manage that stuff? So, um, yeah. I, so. I love it. I love it, Sarah. I think what I love about it is that you're really, um, you're really using the real life context of life and not taking, you know, those textbooks of social skills and giving handouts and worksheets and, and that kind of thing. Do you do, do you do any of that sort of stuff? Yeah. Like, um, you know, there are different sort of, because I can imagine farm programs and equine therapy and animal therapy can be amazing for self-regulation as well um, and emotional regulation. Do you still do conventional sort of alert program and, um, you know, zones of regulation? Do you still incorporate that in? What does that look like? Yeah. Yeah, we do. So, you know, that, that I mean, the, you know, the clinic for the most part and for most of the therapists is, is, you know, similar to others in a way. Um, the difference is we have different pathways for what do you do with those kids? And we all know them. You've done the zones of regulation program. They know it. They know the answers. They know it like the back of their hand. You put them in a group with those two kids and that therapist and they will, you will never have a problem. <laughs> they will be, you know, and they've learned it. Um, but you may still have some impulse control in there or, you know, you may have some other things. So there are certain programs that we run in our social skills groups where we say they must have done this before they go to this. So by the time they come, we have, a, we have some of our outdoor groups, like our construction groups and our farm work groups. 
they really need to have already done that because we're not getting out the charts. You know, we might use the colours, the zones regulation colours, and we might adapt it to, you know, well, which horse going, you know, let's look at these horse pictures, which zone are they going in? The one that's clearly biting the other one, you know, they're not in the green zone, are they? So you can do those things, but it's not ever going to be on an iPad or a laptop. It's not ever going to be on a laminated sheet. It's not going to be that kind of delivery. But sometimes you want them to have um, that emotional regulation, sensory regulation, literacy already, so that then you can say, okay, guys, if you start feeling like you're in the yellow zone, you may need to go hang out, just go sit down for a bit, you know. Um, find your space where you want to, if you want to have a break under the tree and have some of the snack that you brought, that's cool, you know, and then when you're feeling back in the green zone, join us again. So sometimes you may want them to have that literacy because you like, we do like that language because it's better than, you know, if you start, you know, um, you know, if your behaviour goes downhill or you start finding it too difficult, that's all quite negative language. So that's what I like about the self-regulation stuff is you, you've got that, you know, um, non-judgmental language of, you know, guys, if you start to fill in the yellow zone or certainly if you start to get in the red zone, you know, have a chat with one of us, feel free to go sit under the tree, you know, maybe you'd like to have a snack break, just let us know. You know, so, and then we also try and put in some of that, you know, trauma-sensitive, trauma-informed language too. More and more we're trying to build that across our practice right from that very first conversation with a receptionist. We want to be doing those things of saying, you know, um, feel free to fill in the, con the consent forms, you know, that we send you through before we, we make you the appointment. And, you know, you're very welcome to come in and do that. Or perhaps you want to do that at home. Or maybe you might need some assistance with it. So using lots of that kind of language rather than you have to do this before you can come, which if you've got a parent that's getting, you know, triggered, it's not that's not the greatest start so we try and have that nice kind of trauma sense to trauma informed stuff going all the way through and we're still learning about that but that's what we're aiming to um, and then it's the same with the children you know it's uh, we, we don't want to be so directive that they feel pushed around um, you know our homeschool kids are not at school because they struggled with that kind of direction um, for whatever reason they have struggled so we can't sound like you know that authoritative teacher we have to be that therapeutic you know hold that space and manage that really really intelligently and creatively um, it's a big ask for the therapist you know it sounds like you know oh yeah great you know come down we can build something from the, for the goat shed yeah wow great amazing but it's not you know uh, <laughs> it's actually incredibly difficult work and to do all of that well when you've got animals and the environment to deal with and it's not always a beautiful day um you've got kids that don't want sunscreen kids that don't like wind kids that don't like rain kids that don't like the sound of it inside the shed you know kids that won't go out of the shed you know there's so much going on um and then you throw in you know the fact that the goat pushes their way through the gate and then so then that's out near the cars and you know like sometimes crazy and, things. and that's that's um, nature that's that environment too is that unpredictability and that's what can be really great but also really challenging about it really difficult and you know and you know and we'll be saying to the therapists the animals must never get outside the gate like they just can't 
because then they'll be dangerous in the wrong environments. Um, so that means, you know, uh, even if it is a little goat or, some, or a chicken even, you know, your chicken gets out the gate and you can't catch that chicken and it's running around and then someone's let a dog out or someone's got their dog out the car and that's chasing the chicken and the child with severe anxiety who's been traumatised by a lot of drama and, and movement and activity and something being under threat, suddenly this little drama that's playing out can have a really negative effect. And so, you know, and you can't have the dog that's just jumped out the car of the client chasing a chicken just because someone wasn't quick enough to get through that gate, you know, and then the child's in tears because the chicken's going to get hurt and, mm. you know, like you, you don't realise how wrong it can go. So, you know, the therapists are all <laughs> trained in it's, this is why it's really important. Um, but, you know, but things happen, things go wrong and you write the incident report and, you know, and you learn through it, you know, because the farm is a riskier environment. It's less, much, much less predictable, but that's great. That's what you want to say. I know that that was difficult, but Hey, how do we feel? And what do we do about that? And, you know, how are we going to be okay with it? Mm. Um, yeah. So you, you touched on something that I just want to come back to before we wrap it up. And that was that we don't want to be too directive as OTs. We're, we're not the teacher. Um, we're more, we're more of like a coach, like walking alongside them on their journey with them. It's a partnership. I think that we develop what, what sort of tips would you give to OTs to be less directive and less, I suppose, demanding of, of certain activities and what our expectations are and take more of the approach that you're talking about? Because I feel like sometimes we place so much pressure on ourselves to reach the goals. And particularly if parents are sitting in on sessions, they want us to see us doing something productive and making sure we're making use of our time and that we are achieving goals. And so it can almost be this internal battle in ourselves to get things done and to be reaching those goals ASAP. Mm. How can we sort of just lessen that pressure on ourselves um, and, and be less directive? Look, I think it's a great question. I mean, one of the things that I think, it doesn't matter how... Um, alternative you get out there in nature like I say you know it all sounds great you have to have really good goals to start with so you have to have done a good assessment you have to have good goals and from that from your assessment and your goals it's basic therapy process you then have to choose your approach now sometimes I am directive because I may have someone that cannot understand a lot of language. I may have someone with an intellectual disability. I may have someone with, you know, autism that requires me to say, first we do this, then we do this. You know, first paint then apple. So that's not giving them an awful lot of choice, but that's choosing the appropriate, that person hasn't necessarily come in with me needing to create some, um, some well-being around trauma um, or some some confidence or those kinds of things where you know you want to be able to look at self-compassion for example um, you know so it does it depends on your assessment and your goals as to which approach you choose but in general I feel like therapists aren't spending long enough choosing the approach 
They're trained in it, they spend four years learning it, but then they don't bother to choose the approach. They would rather go in armed with stuff and, you know, oh, I've got this photocopied, I've got this laminated, I've got this activity, this, I've got it all set out. But the approach may well be to create some space for that person to be because their life is so incredibly cluttered by everybody telling them what they should and shouldn't be doing all the time. Um, and, you know, sometimes I feel people need to go, if the goal is that they enjoy the session, are motivated to come back, especially if you've got someone that's not very compliant, then it's great to have a structured you know, session and to go through those things and they may love it and they may do all of that, but you may just miss the bit of well-being, which is them just needing to be, to process, to sit and not have you fill the space. Because we've got more and more and more evidence now around mindfulness. If your therapist isn't mindful and calm, that doesn't mean I've got a very exuberant personality. I'm hi. Great to see you. You know, we don't all have to flatten and dampen ourselves down to be mindful. We don't all have to talk in this strange way, and you know, we don't all have to look like a yoga teacher. We just don't. You know, we can be who we are, but I think it's that bit of being authentic, but also going, I'm being mindful of what you are showing me, not just what you're doing and how you're using. If it's a pure straight hand function thing, you know, the child's injured their hand and they're coming in for hand function then that's very different from what most of us are seeing now, our kids with ASD, ADHD, anxiety, oppositional defiance disorder, or what's the new one now, something other, defiance something. Um, <laughs> you know, that, those are the children that are clogging up our, our, our services. And so you need a different approach to that old kind of rehabilitative approach. Um, and, and, you know, yeah. So I think my biggest tip to therapists is be authentic allow there to be some space and notice if you, like you said about um, if parents are in the room, notice if you feel like you are being assessed by the parent. You have to notice because otherwise you're just chewing through your activities. You'll get through them in five minutes and then you won't have anything left. Um, so notice if you're feeling like you're being assessed and I think this happens with everybody, particularly with young children, you know, you get a three-year-old who's absolutely up the walls and you haven't done a lot of behaviour management or you don't have children of your own and you're suddenly sitting there, the parent can control the child, you can't. Suddenly you can feel so de-skilled, so unconfident, and you'll be trying to get that child off your waiting list, off your caseload as quickly as you can. <laughs> um, but really what you can do is say to the parent, you know, the first few sessions... I'm going to be using a play-based approach. Say something like that. You know, you can say something like, I want to do a lot of observational assessment because I want to see what you're doing that's successful. So it might look like I'm not doing anything, but I need to see how the child is behaving, how we're responding, how they respond to different activities I put in. So it might look like I'm doing nothing, I'm just giving them a bobbly cushion, but I actually want to see if I place that in their environment, will they choose it? or will they avoid it? And I need to see. So I'm not gonna make them do anything for the first few sessions. You won't see me doing much. And you can, you can sit there on your laptop putting notes in if you've told the parent that's your, that's your observational assessment. And then you get enough information, you watch them run rings around each other, 
but you're feeding into that by talking and saying, let's just see if we can create some quiet space now. Let's see what happens when we do nothing. We're not even going to speak to each other. Because that's the other thing people will do. If they can't control the child, they'll just chat with the parent. And it might be important, and that parent might have lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of stuff to offload, but that's not a great environment for a child. That's not a therapeutic environment. Everyone's talking about me there and all the terrible things I do. Even if you are three or four, you're not, you know that. You're not, you're not silly. You know, you know that. So just to, you've got, your, you've got your assessment, you've got your goals, and even after your assessment and your goals, you may well want to be saying, I want to be in this environment with you, and I want to know how this works. This is really important. So, and then to, to, to tell the parent what you're doing. I'm not doing anything at the moment because I want to see what they do. And so we're gonna be quiet for now, and see how he tackles this activity I'm putting in. So there's loads of ways just by, just by owning what you're doing. And the other thing I genuinely believe, and this has been where some of my magic moments of therapy have come, where I have not had a clue, I've had nothing. And I have just sat there and gone, I got nothing, give me something. <laughs> I'm gonna just wait. I am just gonna wait. And all of a sudden the child will want to do something or you get an idea and you go, okay, we need to make a paper airplane and it will come. But if you never create space for your intuition, look, I'm really spiritual. I'm getting more into it as I'm getting older. But if you never create space for your own intuition and your own brilliance and your own personality and uniqueness to shine because you're following an agenda, then you'll never get that kind of intuitive, you know, therapy happening. Mm. So but sometimes permission just to just to not do, you know, just to be. I love that. And I think what came through that and what I kind of read into was really creating space to develop this therapeutic relationship that we have with our clients sitting in front of us and seeing them for who they are. Because I think so often we do try and rush to get to our goals and not just sit with them and be with them and create this space and this relationship that we need to develop to develop the trust so that they um so that they trust us enough to share information to to let us into their world and yeah like you said if we don't create this space then we're not going to it's going to be a lot harder to achieve those goals so yeah and i think you know you're right in that you said about expectations and i think that that's the that's the problem because i don't know why we're rushing we have a process, we have a therapy process of assessment, goal setting, choosing your approach, building rapport. Build rapport with a hyperactive three-year-old. You're not gonna do it straight away. You're just not. So I think if people got back to the basics and just be a good therapist, be a good OT, a good, don't worry too much about courses and this and that and taking in, you know, printing stuff out. Don't worry too much about that. Go back to your, your OT process and follow it properly and draw down which is the best approach, what's going to work. Am I actually working with the parent here or am I working with the child? Do I have a goal that's important to the parent, a goal that's important to the child, maybe a goal that's important to the community like the kinder or the school or whatever? You know, how are you going to set your goals out? Who's going to decide? Mm. Is, is, are you just going to ask the parents to decide? They might not actually. That, you've done an assessment so you can help them with that. 
So I set realistic goals that are really functional and then choose the appropriate interventions. And it's basic stuff. Mm. I love yeah. it. I love it. How you put it so simply, it just makes this, you know, it all makes sense, doesn't it? <laughs> um, it really does. And I think it's just getting back to this. It's just getting back to our basics, getting back to the roots of OT, getting yeah. back to foundational stuff that we know, but I feel like we need to justify a lot of the time. So I think mean, that's true. And, and I, I feel like if every time someone wanted to go to the internet, to look something up, to get a resource, to find a this, that or the other that's going to fit the goal, if instead they sat in stillness for five minutes and took themselves and therapeutic use of self into that space, they would be offering something different and possibly something richer. Because mm. we go down rabbit holes on the internet looking for stuff and it's like, you know what, when, when I started out there was no computers. There was no phone. There was no. There was nothing. You know, I could get through the week with a tennis ball and a newspaper. Different activity for every child, but we'd get through the week. You know, like you don't need a lot of stuff. Mm, so true. So true. Thank you so much, Sarah, for your <laughs> wisdom and insight. It's just been absolutely incredible. Soaking up all of this, I've learned so much, and there's still probably a million questions I have for you. But we'll head to our. We've got three rapid fire questions. So the first one is, in one sentence, how do you describe occupational therapy? Helping people develop the skills for living. Love it. Number two, what's one healthy lifestyle habit listeners can implement today? Being mindful before and during sessions. Mm -hmm. And number three, if you could only offer one piece of advice to OTs, what would it be? Stop printing stuff out. <laughs> um, follow your process properly. Think about it. Mm, go back to the frames of reference. Yeah. Look at our models. Yeah, we've got some incredible resources out there. You spent four years learning it. Use it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. So how can everyone find you, Sarah? Like internet, you're on Facebook, yeah, so, socials. Yeah, Sarah Mann, I'm on Facebook. We've got barefoottherapists.com.au is our website. Um, Barefoot Therapists also has a Facebook page and an Instagram page. I'm not quite using the Instagram much yet. I'm kind of not really social media-ish, but we're getting there. Um, but yeah, no, people will, people will find me or they can email me. I'm sarah at barefoottherapist.com.au. Um, yeah, not that, not, that, not that hard to find, I don't think. Yeah, no, it does come up on, in a Google search. So thank you so much, Sarah. I really appreciate your time. And yeah, I look forward to seeing more about what's going to grow in your business and all the exciting programs. I, I'd love to, I, when I, if I come down that way, I'm, I'm coming to see you because um, like I said before, it's down in Rosebud is a, has a special place in my heart. So oh, you'll have to come and brush the horses with, with us. It's very, it's very good for you. Yeah. <laughs> very therapeutic. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks Rhiannon. Lovely to see you. That's it, guys. I hope this episode resonated with you. But more importantly, I hope it inspires you to take action. If you hang out over on Instagram, come over and say hi. Let's connect. I'm at Rhiannon Chris. 
and we'd absolutely love your radiant energy in our Facebook group family. You can find us simply by searching the OT Lifestyle Movement in Facebook. If you love this episode, I'd be super grateful if you shared it. You can take a screenshot right now and share it on Instagram or Facebook so we can connect with more amazing, open-minded OTs from around the world. And if you are sharing it on Instagram, make sure you tag me at Rhiannon Chris so I can share it on my platforms as well. The more we share the OT lifestyle movement, the more we can create a ripple effect. And if you do love the podcast, please give us a five-star review so we can be found more easily. So that's it, guys. Go out, create the epic change that you seek in the world, one occupation at a time. Carpe diem, guys.